Hello, Energy Gang listeners. This week, you are getting a special episode from Green Tech Media. In fact, you'll get a few more over the coming weeks. It's a preview to our new show called The Interchange. On this weekly show, my co-host Shale Khan and I will dig into one topic in order to get beyond the headlines. These topics could include company financials, projects, mergers and acquisitions, policy changes, and technology shifts. Right now, the podcast is coming to you through your Energy Gang feed, but the interchange is a little different than the Energy Gang. The show is actually part of a new service we just launched called GTM Squared. GTM Squared is our new premium editorial service that gives you insider access to our team of energy experts. So in addition to this podcast, GTM Squared subscribers will get more exclusive content, including in-depth article series, research highlights, and multimedia extras. Everything you see on the site currently, including the Energy Gang, is still free, but Squared will give you much more bonus content. For the month of September, we're previewing the interchange right here. If you like what you hear, then head over to gtmsquared.com to learn more about what Squared has to offer. Now on to the show. This is The Interchange, a weekly podcast from GTM Squared on the changing business of energy and clean tech. I'm GTM Senior Editor Stephen Lacey, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, GTM Research Senior Vice President, Shale Khan. Shale, how are you? How's it going in Boston? I'm doing well. It's hot in Boston, though probably not as bad as it is there in D.C. It's always hot here in D.C. But before we introduce today's topic and guest, uh, I'm going to begin today's show with a challenge. In fact, we're going to have a different challenge each week. And today, Shale, I'm going to ask you to identify a quote from a leading figure in the industry. And this is, of course, one of many tests and games we're going to be doing to intro this show. So I'm going to read the quote, and you have to tell me who it is. You ready, Shale? I'm ready. All right. This is actually very relevant to today's conversation. Quote, if you have buffering, which is what the stationary storage allows for, then you only need your power plants to operate at the average energy usage which means you can basically, in principle, shut down half of the world's power plants with energy storage. This is independent of renewable energy. Who is that? Oh, that's interesting. My first thought was that that sounds like something David Crane from NRG would say, but it actually sounds a little bit wonky for him. Like he tends to speak in really visionary terms and doesn't get down into the weeds of it. But he's super bullish on things like that and spends a lot of time talking about not needing the fossil fuel generation that makes up the bulk of NRG's portfolio at some point in the future. I I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with it. I'm gonna go with David Crane. It is it is a good guess. So that's Shales, and we're gonna bring our guest on to take a shot. Varun Sivaram is the Douglas Dillon Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's uh, got a PhD from Oxford University where he worked on next generation PV technologies. And he's also a strategic advisor to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on the state's utility reformation process and has served as an advisor to L.A. Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. Uh, Varun, firstly, welcome to the show. And secondly, do you have a guess as to who made that statement? Thanks for having me, Stephen. Um, You know, if I had to guess, I'd say it's Elon Musk. Uh, Tesla is new to the uh, to the grid storage game, even though they've been in the electricity storage game for a while. And I kind of expect that sort of bombastic statement from Elon Musk to justify why he thinks Tesla's Powerwall and other products are going to change the way that electricity systems work. And can you promise Shale and our listeners that we did not discuss this before the show, nor did I bribe you with any monetary compensation? 
you definitely did not bribe me, and uh, and we did not discuss this. It was definitely Shoot. Elon Musk, and not uh, David Crane. Yes. <laughs> as soon as he said Elon Musk, I was like, man, I know he's going to get it right. Yep. Well, that that was of course Musk talking on a Q2 earnings call earlier this month um, about how important the storage market is to the company's long-term growth, and of course the company has. Uh, seen fewer than expected sales in the electric vehicle market and is really banking on the scale up over the next coming years, a uh, couple of years of its stationary storage business, pushing it very hard. But there are still a lot of questions about how these projects are going to pencil out. And that storage conversation is very relevant to what we're going to be discussing today. A perfect segue into our chat about the long-term economic viability of solar on the grid. And Shale, why don't you explain today's subject? Sure. So the basic question that we're going to be talking about today is how cheap does solar need to be in the long term? Uh, Then there's a lot there, but basically it came out of, Varun wrote a great article uh, a couple weeks ago that was talking about sort of the need for innovation in new solar technology and and had this statement in there that said over the long term, solar is going to need to be a lot cheaper than it is today. And uh, existing technologies may not be enough to get us there. And so that started a conversation between the two of us about why solar would need to be a lot cheaper and uh, how much cheaper, basically. And the the short answer here is, you know, we have these near-term targets that, you know, you could take the DOE's sunshot goal as a way to start. And that goal was to get to about a dollar a watt installed by 2020, which equates to about six cents a kilowatt hour unsubsidized. And that was built as a number that's supposed to be basically cost competitive. So that's as cheap as solar needs to get by 2020 in order to be competitive even without subsidies. Uh, And it looks like we're going to hit those numbers, basically, at least for best-in-class systems. So we'll get there. But solar doesn't really exist in a vacuum. And the problem with solar over the long term is that at higher penetrations, as you get more and more solar on the grid, the incremental value of the next kilowatt hour of solar you put on the grid goes down. And just to unpack that a little bit, it's pretty simple. Basically what happens is you get more and more solar on the grid. Solar's marginal cost is zero. So if it's bidding into a wholesale market or if it's just playing in a wholesale market at all, um, it drives down the cost in the wholesale market. The next one drives it down even further and further. And because solar is not dispatchable, meaning you can't turn it on and off whenever you want, um, it's sort of stuck with whatever the price is at that point in time. And so the more solar you put on the grid, uh, the lower the economic value to the grid of that solar. And so if you assume that over the long term, solar will be subject to the forces of economics on the grid, the assumption will be that solar will get less revenue over time as it gets built out more and more. And to be clear, this is a long-term thing. We're talking about trying to come up with a target for solar for maybe 2050, whereas the sunshine goal is for 2020. So it really happens once we get to much higher penetrations than we're at today. But it's still a relevant question because you can't just hit six cents a kilowatt hour and then uh, stay flat forever. Solar won't keep growing forever under that paradigm. So Varun and I have been talking about trying to figure out basically how much cheaper will solar need to be over the long term? And what should the next sunshot target be? And I know the DOE is looking at this as well. So it's an interesting question because it speaks to sort of over the long term, one, what should we be aiming for? Two, how can we get there with existing technologies? Do we need new technologies? Um, and what might 
change that, what other technologies might influence the need to get those costs down. So that's the question for today. And Varun has been doing um, some great sort of literature review of people who've already been at least looking at solar's value on the grid over time. And so I think it makes sense to start off with you, Varun, sort of talk us through what you've found so far with regard to what happens as solar penetration increases. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Shale did a good job um, uh, setting out the conceptual framework here. So to borrow a phrase from my colleague at CFR, Michael Levy, the economics are going to be different when solar is a mainstream alternative rather than what it is right now, which is basically nipping at the fringes of conventional energy. So in the future, we expect that solar's value will deflate considerably as more solar is put on the grid. And this comes, this arises because you can't control the generation profile of solar. Solar is going to generate when the sunlight is hitting the solar panel. Um, I first learned about this uh, price depression effect from MIT's Future of Solar report that was released earlier this year. And in digging in and talking with a colleague, Jesse Jenkins at MIT, I found several sources that have been talking about this effect starting in the 1990s when the effect was first identified and in the 2000s when uh, researchers at NREL identified it. The best quantitative estimates I've seen come from Leon Hirth in Germany in 2013 saying that the grid in Germany if uh, solar PV were to account for 15% of all uh, system energy, the solar value would decline by about 50, 50%. Um, MIT did a similar analysis for the Texas grid and found that if solar accounted for 15% of the total energy, this is energy, not power, so kilowatt hours and not kilowatts, then we expect that the price would deflate in the wholesale market on the order of 60%. And beyond 15% penetration, the only result I've seen in the literature comes from Lawrence Berkeley Natural, uh, National Laboratory. Mills and Weiser in 2014 report that the value of solar will drop by about 75% in California if solar achieves 30% penetration by energy. And that, that means, they conclude, the value of solar uh, to the grid is going to be on the order of 2.5 cents per kilowatt hour, so considerably less than the value it provides before it achieves such a high penetration level. Those numbers have all been pretty revealing, and what, one of the things that's interesting about them is that they're very different studies, they're using somewhat different methodologies in different locations, but the results are within you know, a reasonably small band, which is to say if you hit 15% penetration, you end up maybe eroding the value of solar something like 50 to 75%. So just taking that as a rough benchmark and setting aside all the other factors that could come into play here, which I think we should talk about, you know, that suggests a cost target um, that goes from, you know, six cents a kilowatt hour roughly in, in 2020 to, you know, two cents a kilowatt hour or so at 15% penetration or a little higher. Um, and then, you know, if you want to get to, say, 30% penetration, which I think is a more reasonable target to try to hit for 2050, then we might be talking about something in the range of one to two cents per kilowatt hour. Or if you want to translate that, to CapEx, that's something like 25 cents a watt installed. 25 cents a watt installed is, is kind of ludicrous by today's standards, right? The, it's less than 
half the cost of the traditional solar panel alone, not to mention the inverter and the racking system and the installation labor and all these other things. So the interesting thing about this to me is that if by 2050 we want to try to get to somewhere in the range of 25 cents a watt for an entire PV system, um, something meaningful needs to change. Incremental cost declines just aren't going to get there. And so that's, I think, an interesting piece of this analysis. But first, let me ask you this. Um, What are the factors that might change this? I mean, before we talk about what it would take to get to 25 cents a watt, is there anything that could happen in between now and then that would mean that target is too aggressive? And in other words, you only need to get to 50 cents a watt or something. Totally. Before we talk about wildcards, it's probably important just to explain that this is a very aggressive target um, that takes into account potential policy uncertainty um, as well as market uncertainty. So it may very well be the case that around the world you have uh, long-term power purchase agreement contracts or you know, residential net metering policies that allow solar to basically uh, compete on the grid without being exposed to the wholesale price depression effect that we've been talking about. But when Shale and I talked about the, you know, setting an aggressive target, we thought we'd want to make a target that was invulnerable to future policy uncertainty. And frankly, the the quarter a watt target seems to do a good job of that. Um, If solar is left to the wild, if solar has to compete in a completely open wholesale market, a cost target of 25 cents a watt or one to two cents a kilowatt hour should make it competitive regardless of how uh, highly penetrated it becomes. Now, Shale, you asked, what are the sorts of things um, that might suggest that this target is too aggressive? I think there are two major factors. One is, what potential role could storage play in mitigating the price depression effect? And the second is, what role could demand-side management play in ameliorating the fact that solar only generates in a fixed generation profile that may or may not be well tailored to when people use power. Um, The first point, what's the role of storage, I think is super hyped up. Um, And and we heard this great quote from Elon Musk earlier on in the the podcast. However, the earlier, the, the early analyses that I've seen show that storage is not a silver bullet. It's not a panacea. Are you talking about residential storage or bulk power storage? Either one. So the, the argument goes that if you can just arbitrage or buffer away solar's fixed generation profile, um, then you can make sure that solar does not decline in value the more solar you put on the grid. That argument sounds great in theory. It works for both residential and utility-scale installations. Um, however, uh, when, when Leon Hurth did his analysis uh, of the Germany grid, and I think this, is, this applies to large-scale installations, uh, he found that storage, doubling the amount of storage in Germany, would really only reduce this price depression effect by less than 10%. In other words, it would take a massive amount of storage, a prohibitively prohibitively expensive amount of storage, um, to really uh, counteract the price depression effect that causes solar to become less valuable the more solar you put on the grid. And I've heard similar analyses at the system level from Stephen Brick at the Clean Air Task Force. With respect to residential systems, um, I think there have been several analyses put out there, and Shale can can, uh, comment on this, that say that, you know, today, adding the cost of a Tesla Powerwall to a residential solar system certainly makes the system 
uh, less economical than uh, centrally generating power uh, as an alternative. Shale, would you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, residential energy storage plus solar in the U.S. right now is generally it's not an economic decision. Um, it's not that far off from being an economic decision, and there's a bunch of factors at play that could make it more economic over time. More time of use rates and larger differentials in those rates, you know, residential demand charges, changes to net metering. So I, I think I think there's a world not too far from here where residential energy storage does make sense. But I think the bigger point here that you're making, which I agree with, is that, you know, there's some extent to which storage, and you mentioned demand-side management, which we should talk about as well, could ameliorate this effect and make it so that the deflationary impact is smaller than we're talking about. On the other hand, it's not prudent to design your sort of lofty cost goals based on the assumption that that is going to happen. So again, what we're saying is let's Let's set the most aggressive target that we think is realistic, but also that uh, will make the market buffered from those things and not just assume that they're going to happen. The other piece on demand side management, just to close that part out, I mean, the other thing you can do to make it such that solar's um, value decreases more slowly is you can change load. Um, so you can make it so that you can move peaks load, you know, further toward the time when solar is generating. Um, or, you know, I think another factor here that is worth at least noting is things like new sources of load that you can choose when to utilize, like electric vehicle charging. So if we see a big EV revolution and the utilities send price signals that make it such that it is cheapest to uh, charge your EV at times when solar is generating, that could increase load then. So there's a bunch of things that could factor in here. But at the end of the day, I think the likelihood is at a minimum, there's going to be some need to significantly decrease solar costs from their current levels by the 2050 timeline. I mean, that thing, that seems easy to say. And the, the final thing I would note too, is just that, you know, we've been talking about these numbers, 25 cents a watt installed. It's worth noting that probably applies primarily to utility scale, to centralized solar. And you could probably have a separate set of targets for residential and commercial solar that have maybe slightly higher numbers because um, of the value that they'll get from things like T&D deferral and so on. So, so I want to get into the technological piece here, but I just want to hang on this storage point for a moment because I understand the limitations in residential storage. You know, Right now, it's basically only people who are willing to pay a premium for a backup system. And there are very few market signals that allow people to you know, bid into frequency regulation markets or to create some extra value for that storage system that increases the, the cost of the overall installed solar. But on the bulk power system, help me understand why you would need so much storage um, to make solar slightly more valuable. Is it just because the, the storage uh, project developers or owners don't have the economic incentive necessarily to, stole, to store that solar power? Like, I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand why there's such a significant limitation on the bulk power system. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you're absolutely right. Um, right now, um, markets don't provide uh, an excellent incentive to buffer the solar power. But part of the reason that it's technically infeasible is um, there's a large seasonality component to solar generation. So you really need seasonal storage, storage that's going to you know, store up solar generation during the summer and discharge it during the winter. Um, and at the scales that I've seen in the, in, in the few models, the few preliminary models that have looked at high solar penetration, 
that level of storage, first of all, like doesn't exist, and second is ex would be extremely expensive to deploy. So you need all kinds of different storage. You need um, storage on the on the minute to hour scale to buffer intermittency. You'd need uh, storage on the diurnal scale to buffer the fact that solar generates during the day and not during the night. And you need seasonal storage. And all these different sorts of storage, several are uh, are very expensive, and you'd need a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the counter-arguments to what Varun and I are saying involve, you know, things that you could imagine happening but are no guarantee, like the cost of storage declining a lot faster than most people anticipate. That could happen. To the extent that that does happen, maybe it gets more economic to do that at some scale, at least, if not entirely down the line. Um, the other thing, I guess, that is an, another counterpoint is, you know, what if... Uh, what if solar starts to get new revenue streams? So above and beyond just the, the dollars per kilowatt, or the dollars per kilowatt hour, rather. You know, what if uh, most behind the meter solar becomes aggregated and bid into ancillary service markets and things like that? And there's new revenue streams for that solar. Maybe, maybe you don't need to get down to that same cost target. So again, all these things could happen at the same time. That's not how you design you know, an aggressive cost target 30 years into the future. You just can't assume it to be the case, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I'd say to quickly finish off that demand side management point, look, I'm a big believer that we're going to find a way, especially in New York, to design markets that adequately compensate distributed energy resources for the services they provide. Shale mentioned a few. But what we're now talking about is deploying solar around the world and achieving a material penetration, which is what we're going to need to decarbonize the world. And if you, uh, it, I think it's irresponsible to expect that around the world we're going to be able to deploy effective demand-side management responses. And so the the bright thing to do when creating a target is to assume that load is dumb, that load is not going to follow solar um, in a way that I think is quite plausible in some of the advanced markets here in the United States, but may very well not be possible at a large scale and around the world. So if we can pivot for a second, because I think there's a second part to this conversation that to me is just as interesting. So the first part here is uh, how cheap does solar need to be? So let's just assume that Varun and I are sort of in the ballpark. And by 2050 or so, we, you know, solar in order to remain competitive needs to be at about 25 cents a watt installed or one to two cents per kilowatt hour. That then raises the question of can we get there with existing technology. You know, the cost of solar has been falling really fast for years. Um, if it were to continue falling at the same pace that it has for the past five years or so, then, you know, you, you might be able to get to, to that number with existing technology. But the question is, are we going to hit some technological limitation? And if so, you know, is it realistic to get to those numbers and, and how might that happen? So Varun, do you want to tackle the can we get there with existing technology question? Yeah, absolutely. And look, all of us come to this with a bias. Before I even started looking into this, my bias as a scientist was, surely we can't get there with existing technology. Any solar scientist will tell you that silicon solar is one of the most inelegant solutions. Um, silicon is just a bad material for being a photovoltaic uh, electricity generating material. Um, but when I looked into it, I found that uh, the target we've chosen, a quarter of water, one to two cents a kilowatt hour, is just infeasible with today's silicon solar modules. Um, the way that silicon solar modules get cheaper is through this experience curve effect. The more solar modules you build, manufacture, mostly in China, the easier it gets to manufacture them and the cheaper they become. Moreover, the cheaper certain soft costs become, 
like installation expenses or financing expenses. Um, but if you follow the curves, even if you assume that you know, today solar accounts for 1% of global generation, what if it accounts for 30% of global generation? If you run the numbers um, and think about the 10 terawatt cumulative capacity regime of solar, your solar module is still not going to be uh, at your quarter watt target. It's probably going to be about 30 cents per watt. And that's just your solar module cost. You still have all kinds of soft costs on top of that. Um, and so the, the projections I've seen for how silicon solar is going to come down in cost and incrementally increase in efficiency and financing and installations all going to become cheaper, those are great things. And that sets us on a glide path for maybe the next decade or two decades. But it will not get us to where we need to be to deploy solar in the range of 20, 30, 40% of global generation by 2050. Yeah, I mean, just to unpack those numbers a little bit. So, you know, if we're, if you, the long term cost of a solar module as a silicon solar module is 30 cents, I mean, assume you're, you're wrong about that, you even get it to something like 20 cents. I mean, you still, you have other hardware, you have the inverter, you have the racking system, you have mounting and wiring and all these other things. And then you have labor and soft cost and installation, interconnection and all of that. Like it's, it's very hard for me to imagine that with, you know, even today's form factor and a different module technology, you still get to 25 cents a watt, right? So then the question is like, is it even feasible? Can you even imagine a way? that solar gets to that kind of cost. That's right. Um, I think if, if you're trying to slot in a different module technology into an existing um, installed cost model, the numbers are just gonna, never going to work out. Because you could give away the PV material for free, um, and you'd still have you know, soft costs and installation costs that, that exceed the cap that we have put. And so in the future, we can imagine solar panels that have a whole range of attributes that they don't have today that may enable a different cost model for them. So, for example, solar modules could be flexible, they could be partially transparent, they could be lightweight, and this opens up all kinds of applications for them uh, that are not available to today's heavy and rigid silicon solar modules. Um, in addition, even for the large-scale utility installations, uh, you can imagine carpeting the desert with very cheap solar panels that don't require expensive racking equipment or extensive labor. In order for solar to meet this target, it's going to have to look fundamentally different than what it does today. And I think what it's going to look like um, is, is a very thin, flexible, and transparent material. Now, now let me jump in, and Stephen, I want to ask you a question. I mean, you're you're a journalist who's been covering the solar industry since the uh, the days of the heady thin film boom. And if you're hearing, you know, lightweight and flexible and and transparent, those probably are ringing bells for you of like the totally. arguments that were made about SIGs back in 2007, and why companies like Solyndra and Mia Soleil and all these other companies raised billions of dollars and then went bust. Like, does it seem to you? unreasonable for us to now reopen that conversation and say, well, over a much longer time period, we do actually need to get not necessarily to that specific technology, but to technologies that have those same attributes. I don't think it's unreasonable 
because I, I think the problems that we saw between you know 2009 and 2012 were a product of companies scaling up too quickly and making promises to venture investors that they couldn't keep. And so you saw billions of dollars flow into the industry for companies that didn't realize how expensive it was going to be to scale up their manufacturing processes and thought that they'd be able to do it in a couple of years and achieve gigawatt scale. And it turned out that that was not the case, particularly for SIGs, which is extremely expensive to produce. But there's still a lot of promise with those technologies. So I think it's a really good conversation to have. And and as I read Varun's writing and, and writing for others about the need for these next generation technologies, I think the conversation is how you the better conversation is how you get them from the lab to the pre-commercial scale, um, because there are, you know, I know that Varun has worked on perovskites, and you have major degradation issues. They're not nearly, they're, I mean, they're still on a lab scale, and we're talking about technologies that are decades off from commercialization. So it's certainly not unreasonable to have this conversation. We need to be having it. It just there's a a major difference between what companies were claiming they could do five years ago and what we're talking about today. And I think Varun's very realistic about that. Absolutely, Stephen. Um, I think that. Uh, we need to be clear-eyed about the obstacles in front of new energy technologies. So in, I worked on perovskites, like you mentioned, and we who are in the field think that perovskites are a dramatic scientific discovery, but that really hasn't cleared the path for them to go and overtake silicon. Can in you fact, actually explain to our listeners what perovskites are, just for those who might not know? Absolutely. Um, perovskites are a new solar technology um, that are made from readily available earth-abundant materials that you can basically inkjet print in a roll-to-roll manufacturing process. That means onto a, a flexible substrate that's very cheap. You can do it at low temperature. The reason it's so uh, remarkable is perovskites shattered these trade-offs that traditionally existed in solar. Before, you could only get transparency or flexibility or lightweight if you gave up or if you compromised on efficiency. And so you had a choice between uh, low-quality amorphous silicon panels that were flexible and high-quality and highly efficient silicon panels that were not at all versatile. Suddenly, we can get everything in one package with the perovskite, and that's why it's so exciting. Um, It was, in 2013, one of Nature Magazine's top 10 scientific discoveries of the year. Um, So that's what the perovskite is, and that's why we're so excited about it. But there's still not a clear path to commercialization. And it would be wrong for perovskite companies to try and follow the same model as the failed companies in Silicon Valley from 2006 to 2012. Those companies tried to go head-on against the silicon companies, and they failed. Instead, perovskites can probably be most successful if they try and first incrementally improve upon silicon using a tandem cell device. A tandem cell is when you layer a perovskite coating right onto a silicon solar panel so you can work it right into the existing silicon production process. In doing that, you can probably ramp up perovskites to some production level, and then you can reach for niche markets, markets like building integrated photovoltaics, solar windows, um, solar shingles. And in doing all of these incremental steps or side markets, you slowly build up the technology to levels of scale where finally it can compete for large utility scale applications. But without that path, that incremental path forward, disruptive innovation has tended to stall in solar photovoltaics. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things there, I mean, you mentioned the piece. So to me, in order to get to anywhere near 25 cents a watt or whatever number you want to pick, 
I mean, you mentioned BIPV, building integrated photovoltaics and solar windows and things like that. I mean, those seem to me to be a total necessity, which is funny because, you know, we at GTM Research basically haven't been covering those things for the past few years because they are such a negligible part of the market. And there's always, you know, we get a call from a reporter once every couple of weeks that's doing some article on a new BIPV technology or something like that. And, you know, we have a skeptical eye toward them because it's really hard for them to compete now. But you, you have to assume that something like that ends up being how most solar gets built out, which I think is interesting because it also sort of implies then that's how you can get to low installation costs. If the installation that you're doing is not just a pure solar installation, we're not just retrofitting a lot of buildings to put solar on the rooftop. It's if it's a part of the installation of the roof or the installation of the windows. You could also imagine it being a, a much bigger part of new construction uh, as opposed to just retrofits. So things like that are sort of interesting to me because they're the, the things that we don't really think about at GTM Research a whole lot because we're looking at a much shorter timeline but you figure somebody's got to be somewhere working on this in order for it to happen. And then at some point has to commercialize it successfully and compete as they scale up, which is that's hard, so hard. And I guess that's the big question that we're trying to get at here, right? I mean, how can you get manufacturers to make investments in some of these research projects so that they could potentially partner? You, know, you mentioned la- layering perovskites over traditional crystal and silicon cells. You know, what needs to happen to get companies working together? And then I guess this is more of a government conversation too, right? Like what could organizations like the DOE be doing to to back early stage technologies like this where they might not have um, backed before? They, you know, that the loan guarantee program obviously was designed to scale conventional renewables. And, you know, while they've certainly put a decent amount of money behind R&D, we're talking about a lot more money that we need to see in order to make this stuff a reality. So I guess I'd love to hear, Varun, your steps. What are some concrete steps both between, um, both in government and between you know, research labs and the private sector companies that will ultimately be scaling this stuff up? What do we need to see happen? That's a great question. Um, my instinct is that the missing actor from this ecosystem is large companies. So I've compared clean tech uh, as a sector to two other sectors, medical technology and software technology. And I found that clean tech returned uh, venture capital money far less often and with far more risk than for the other two sectors. And one of the big reasons was that there are large companies willing to acquire uh, software companies as well as uh, medical technology companies, but there aren't any who are going to acquire young energy technology companies. And that gap explains, I think, a lot of the failure um, of solar innovative solar technologies uh, making it to the commercial stage. So whereas you have a large pharmaceutical company who's willing to buy a medical device that has only made it partially through FDA trials, you don't have a large oil company that's going to go buy um, a, a, a young solar company. I do, however, think that in the United States, um, we do have solar majors we're talking, you know, Solar City, uh, First Solar, Sun Edison, Sun Power, that are more inclined to support innovation than many of their Chinese counterparts. Uh, currently, they're losing the game to buy many of the innovative American technologies. Hanergy in China has bought up a whole host of innovative technologies. Well, and they but haven't I, done very well at that. Well, uh, they they have <laughs> not. Um, but, but I believe that it will take a large American companies um, supporting innovative technologies, and the government can play a role in facilitating that. 
Um, I would add too, I mean, you know, getting large companies and potential acquirers is clearly an important thing. And I agree with you. I think that I think that companies like SunPower and First Solar and Sun Edison and Solar City and all those are are the acquirers these days. And actually a lot of them have bought up the earlier stage technology companies. You know, Solar City just bought Salevo and is building out a, a one gigawatt factory in Buffalo. Um, but I also think the government you know, has done pretty well at this. Like Sunshot, just to come back to that, the Sunshot program to me has been actually really effective. So Sunshot set this target, you know, years ago to get to a dollar a watt by 2020. And um, at first was investing primarily in, I think, in module technology to get us there. But then realized that actually module costs were probably already going to get basically to the numbers they needed to be at to hit the dollar a watt target. And the harder part is soft costs. And so, uh, Sunshot sort of pivoted and started investing in lots of, you know, new startups and innovations around soft costs, some of which have yielded some meaningful returns. I, I could imagine a successor Sunshot program with a longer time horizon and a much more aggressive target that is dedicated more to back into the sort of technology world and actually also into figuring out the right form factor and how to get that to market. And, and I could see that having a meaningful impact. I, I guess I don't have a great sense of the scale that that program needs to be at relative to Sunshot, but it seems like it would work. I mean, I guess we're talking about ARPA-E here then in theory. We really are. And, and to follow up on Shale's point, that shift to a new and more ambitious program that supports earlier stage technologies better happen soon. Because I've talked to both of you about technology lock-in and how we're creating an ecosystem right now that's geared toward deployment of panels that look like today's panels. Um, we have a whole set of financing structures that are built on decades of data on you know, silicon and cadmium telluride panels. And without a, an aggressive investment in research and development, we're not going to be able to allow emerging technologies to break into a solar world dominated by an existing technology that's only entrenching its lead. And so that's why I think it's absolutely crucial. Sunshot was very effective, you're right, at getting to what its, uh, its stated target was. I think we need to change that stated target now and reorient its focus back to fundamental technology changes. Otherwise, all change will be incremental. I think it was Jim Rogers who once said that natural ga gas was the crack cocaine of the utility industry, and I suppose silicon is the crack cocaine of the solar industry. Yeah, I'm sure the silicon manufacturers will love that. Um, but no, I mean, I, th I think that's that's right to an extent. Uh, it, it does probably make sense for for Sunshot if it has a successor program with a longer time horizon to to focus back on fundamental science. Although, like you said, ARPA-E might be a better place to do that. But what what seems to me to be a factor that is a is a real lesson from the first iteration of Sunshot is that the soft cost deployment strategy downstream innovation world is a tough nut to crack and also one where costs are are frustratingly and persistently high and so if part of this whole shift over the long term is going to be not just moving to a new type of panel or a new system design but also actually figuring out how to make BIPV a real thing um, and get it entrenched in the building industry and, you know, figure out solutions for insurance and all these kinds of things. Like there's a, there's a definite role for a sunshot type program to play there as well, because and, and, for the same reasons it was soft costs in the first round. Well, let's be clear about sunshot here. There is no doubt that they've supported some very innovative companies, but they were really helped out by the market trends that were already underway. And of course we had the steep drop in panel prices, but we had seen a lot of 
innovations in power electronics, um, in the buildup of sales forces and customer acquisition. And so a lot of this stuff was underway and Sunshot recognized that and helped push it forward. But what we're talking about when it comes to taking innovative technologies out of the lab, it's a much steeper curve. And um, you can really say whether the government succeeded or failed if a technology does or doesn't make it. I think it's a clearer line. That yeah, might I, be true. It's it's hard to do a counterfactual and say, like, would some of these customer acquisition companies have made it or made it as quickly as they have if Sunshot hadn't been there? But, I mean, my perception is, especially coming from the place that I do, is that at a minimum, in addition to the money that Sunshot has provided, Sunshot provides a platform to sort of project a little bit louder some of these innovations on the soft cost side that has allowed places like Green Tech Media to notice them that might not have otherwise. But in addition to that, bigger players to see them and test them out and, you know, see how they work and then iterate on them. So it does, I, I agree with you, it's easier to, to measure for technology. But, uh, but to me, you know, thinking a lot about where this would have to go, I think it would be a mistake to sort of assume that the, the downstream business model part of this is going to figure itself out. I think you're absolutely right, Shale. Um, the, the, the two last points I'd make are Andy Revkin at the New York Times has a graphic that shows that the current amount of uh, energy spending in the United States as a percentage of non-defense R&D is absolutely dwarfed by space spending and health spending. We absolutely need to ramp up the amount of uh, public funding that goes to energy R&D. That's one point. Another point is, Shale, you're right that um, business model is just as important as getting the right technology um, out the door. And as a result, I really support these integrated research efforts. I think the National Renewable Energy Laboratory is a prime example. Um, when I visited, I saw economists and scientists and systems integrators all working together um, to try and craft a complete solution for solar. And that's really what we're going to need if, we, if, if any of these alternative technologies or models like BIPV are going to work in the long term. We're going to need integrated support, not just um, research and development into new materials. Right. And, and, and you're right on making that point, Varun. And we're talking about this as if many of these investments are not underway. And of course, both within DOE and the, offices, the Office of Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency and then with the Office of uh, Electricity and then at ARPA-E, people have been making millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in investments in many of these next generation power electronics and grid modernization technologies and in, in solar. So it's not like this isn't happening, but what we're talking about is a much bigger scale than what we have today. That's exactly right. right. So I guess the big question for me is, you know, we can talk about whether the PV technologies are ready. And we have on one side, the balance of systems and the actual module itself. Um, and then we have all these other technologies like distributed energy resource management systems, you know, the software that can help control the grid, that can uh, help utilities and communities build microgrids to better control this stuff. You know, we are talking about a lot of really interesting stuff that we cover at Green Tech Media that's um, still in the pilot scale or pre-commercial scale, but that really isn't discussed within the context of the economic value of renewables. You know, when you look at the Lawrence Berkeley report or the stuff that the Breakthrough Institute put together, or uh, they all make really excellent points about the declining value of a technology like solar. But we are completely missing this uh, sort of grid control piece that I think is really important. 
And I don't want to overstate its importance yet, but, um, you know, my feeling is that there are a whole set of technologies out there that utilities are experimenting with and that are, you know, coming out of startups that uh, could change the equation here and, and may lessen the economic blow on solar. Stephen, you're, you're absolutely right. There are some very exciting technologies. Um, and, and, you know, if you visit the NREL Energy System Integration Facility, they'll tell you, hey, all we have to do is figure out how to do systems integration. And to an extent, that's true. But when we're setting a target, I'd prefer to set a target that is pessimistic, um, uh, takes no chances about the adoption of these very cool uh, technologies, but is clear-eyed about the low probability of utilities around the world adopting them in a quick manner. I'd love to have a hardware solution at the generation end that is extremely cheap, that then uh, enables us to deploy advanced grid technology in advanced markets um, and beat our targets. But at the very least, we'll have a cheap hardware solution as a backstop. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think you know this. This is what we're trying to get to. What what Varun and I are working on is is trying to get to a you know very ambitious, but within the realm of reality, target. And so we want that target to be something that if we can hit it, then then basically everything else is gravy, at least during that time frame. Well, we've talked um, through the process here and what you guys are considering. Can you give us a sense of? where you're going to end up with this? I know the analysis is still early stage, but like considering all these factors, what can listeners take away from the probability that we could get to such a low price point? Well, I think it's possible. You know, we need to do more research. There's there's a fair amount of good analysis. Rune laid a lot of it out at the beginning um, that's already been done. And so we need to run through all of that. And we're, we're going to be doing that. And in fact, we would love for listeners to to write in and Tell us other places we should be looking. I'm sure a lot of people have been thinking about this for years, much longer than we have. So we solicit your input, um, either on what the targets should be, how realistic they are, or uh, or anything else that might impact this. Let me put it another way, though. Um, I think the quarter watt target that Shale and I are tossing around um, is somewhere around where we need to get to. The question, Stephen, of how feasible is it is really a question for human imagination. Because I can tell you from a scientific point of view, solar is decades behind similar fields. Um, solar's cousin, semiconductors, are, you know, uh, semiconductors improve by a factor of a billion in computing power over the same time that solar modules improve by 2x in efficiency. There is a lot of room for improvement in solar. And I think we can look to other ind- industries for inspiration. Well, I think that, that closes the discussion very nicely. Again, that is Varun Sivaram, who is a fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C. And uh, as I mentioned, he uh, has a Ph.D. from Oxford and has worked on solar technologies uh, and so knows the industry very well, knows the technological side very well. Shail Khan knows the industry extraordinarily well. He's my co-host and GTM's senior vice president um, based in Boston. Varun, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And Shale, this was fun. Yeah, looking forward to an endless stream of these with you. Indeed. Again, the podcast is called The Interchange. We're giving away the first few episodes for free here to listeners of The Energy Gang. But eventually it won't be free, and it will only be available to subscribers of GTM Squared. As a reminder, GTM Squared is a new premium editorial service 
that will give you a deeper access to our team of experts. In addition to this show, uh, subscribers of GTM Squared will get numerous in-depth article series and special insights from our team of analysts, as well as discounts to conferences. It's cheap, too, at only $1.99 a year. Nothing changes at Green Tech Media. You can still get all our other content for free, but we're going to have a whole lot more for a low yearly price. So go type in your browser, gtmsquared.com. Check out our offerings and subscribe. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Interchange. Thanks for listening and for becoming a square. Square.